It's time for another episode of the Core Extra Podcast. <laughs> he had the hair in the middle of his back and a horn on the top of his head. Big triangle-shaped shiny object in the sky. I don't know what it was. That's, that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. None of this stuff is real. I know what I saw. Welcome to another episode of The Attic here of the Core Extra Podcast. Of course, The Attic is our weekly feature where we talk about the unexplained, the supernatural, and the paranormal. If you tuned in expecting to hear the Philadelphia experiment, well, I have an interesting story about why we couldn't post the Philadelphia experiment podcast this week. Before I tell you that, I'll tell you that we will schedule that and post it sometime in the future. But obviously, it being Halloween, we're going to concentrate on that for the next few weeks uh, here on the attic. So, let me tell you what happened and why we couldn't bring you the Philadelphia Experiment. Now, to do that, I have to give you some history. A little bit of history, and I have to rewind about a week. So last Saturday, Steve and I went to Lebanon, Ohio, which is about a half an hour north from Cincinnati. Um, If any of you are familiar with Kings Island or near Cincinnati, the amusement park, it's just a little past there. Nice, small little town. Um, For all of you um, movie and TV fans, you may know Lebanon, Ohio, because Woody Harrelson is from there or spent a good time there in, in his youth. And you can still go to the little milkshake shop and read about Woody Harrelson and see pictures of him when he was much younger. But at any rate, we go up to the Apple Festival. Steve and I go up there. And while we're there, we figure, well, hey, why don't we stop by the Golden Lamb, which is Ohio's most haunted restaurant, right? So after pilling around, milling around the... Apple Festival, which, by the way, was very good, but we found one thing very hard to get at the Apple Festival, and that's apples, which is a whole other story. We'll tell that on a different podcast uh, coming up, but it was very interesting. But anyway, so we decided to go down to the Golden Lamb. Now, the Golden Lamb was extremely crowded, uh, as it usually is on a Saturday. You can uh, eat in the restaurant and you can spend the night in a hotel. It's a hotel restaurant. Now it's 200 plus years old. So it's been there for a long time. It has recently been featured on the Food Network and they called it Ohio's most haunted restaurant. That's where I saw that. But let me tell you what supposedly happens there. Over the years, guests have said that spirits and several ghosts still occupy the rooms of the restaurant and hotel. Okay. Now, as a result of that, the hotel is kind of known, the hotel restaurant is kind of known for that, right? <laughs> you know, so let's talk about some of these spirits. Well, one of them is a guy named Clement L. Vallandingham. Okay, he was a congressman back in the Civil War, and he fatally shot himself by accident in one of the rooms. Now, that room now is named after him, so it's the Vallandingham Room. Vallandingham was the leader of an anti-war effort. Okay, and, and, and that group was known as the Copperheads. 
So at the time, he was facing charges of treason for opposing the war, and he was escorted to Tennessee. Eventually, he sailed to Canada, where he launched a campaign to become Ohio governor while still in exile. And then he secretly returned to Ohio back in 1864. So years later, he was in Lebanon, second floor room of the Lebanon House, which is now the Golden Lamb, uh, representing and preparing a defense for Tommen McGeehan, who was accused of fatally shooting yet another man, Tom Myers, in a saloon brawl. So Volandingham was demonstrating how the victim could have accidentally shot himself while drawing his pistol. Volandingham, who thought his weapon was unloaded, fired a bullet into his own abdomen. He died in the room the following morning. So several reports of a man matching Volandingham's description have been made over the period of years. Okay? Now, his death is not the only one, though. If that's not creepy enough, it's another one. Um... There's a Supreme Court Justice, Charles Sherman, who suddenly died at the, at the end at the age of 41. Now, Sherman's death left his wife and 11 children, including Civil War General William T. Sherman, all penniless. Most of his children were put up for adoption, and some say the guilt of his family's demise keeps the spirit at the end. So you have these two guys, Valandingham and Sherman, that died under different type circumstances and still haunt the place. I mean, people talk about seeing and hearing these guys all the time. But then there's somebody else that people talk about seeing and hearing. People also reportedly see or experience ghostly encounters with a little girl believed to be the spirit of Sarah Stubbs or Eliza Clay. Now, Stubbs lived at the Golden Lamb as a little child, but eventually left, married, and had a family of her own. Now, some people say she appears at the Golden Lamb as a young girl to revisit her childhood home. Others believe the young girl is actually Eliza Clay, the daughter of Henry Clay, President John Quincy Adams, Secretary of State, and the U.S. Senator from Kentucky. The Clay family was traveling to Washington, D.C., when little Eliza fell ill and forced the family to stop at the Golden Lamb. She succumbed to her illness at the Golden Lamb and was buried in a local cemetery, far away from her Lexington home. So I think the theory is that she's a little unsettled because she was so far away from Lexington. So those are the spirits that allegedly haunt or occupy the Golden Lamb. Now, of course, Steve and I want to go down there and get some first-hand information. Okay, we want to go down there and talk to people. We want to go down there and walk around and maybe go up to the Vlandingham room. But as I mentioned, it's crowded, right? So you can't really interrupt people's dinner and that and say, hey, we want to go ghost hunting. So we kind of had to do it uh, kind of low key, which we did. It was no problem. So we kind of walked around in there and we talked to people. And people are very, um, the the staff there is very uh, forthcoming. They'll talk to you about it with no problem. So we go in and I decide I have our recording equipment, our remote recording equipment, turn it on. It's a little task cam. I turn it on and we're getting some good audio, right? So we talk to some people. We can't get up in the Blandingham room, obviously. We can't get up there, but people are telling us, oh, I saw I saw little Eliza and somebody, you know, these people sounded like they knew what they were they believed anyway what they were saying. 
Um, we took some pictures. Uh, pictures came out okay, but you can see a lot of that stuff online. As it was nice outside, a lot of people were out milling around outside. And we got a lot of good audio. Talk to these people as well. So that's pretty much the end of that. We get the audio. We we walk around there. And the, like I said, in the hotel and restaurant, we didn't eat there. It was like an hour wait. We didn't eat. We weren't going to eat there anyway. Um, but um, it went real well, especially for not making plans on doing on on their end. I mean, we just kind of showed up, right? But it was all good. It was all going good. Now. The following day, I take my little recording equipment and we go back to the core extra studio, the veranda, as, you know, and um, we record the Philadelphia experiment. Now, if you are not familiar with the Philadelphia experiment, that's where uh, the United States tried to transport a destroyer from point A to point B and even... Um, move it across time. Now, oh, well, let me back up one second. When we got in the car, when Steve and I got in the car, I plugged the earphones in and listened, fast forwarded, but listened to several times some of the interviews and the audio that we obtained from the Golden Lamb. Okay. So I listened to it. It all came out great. You know, it was a lot of background noise, but it was all vocal background. So it wasn't that bad. You could tell we were in a crowd, right? So I listened to it. I let Steve listen to it. Came out great. So this is Saturday. Sunday I go, I get up, go to the studio, meet Steve at the studio, plug in the earphones again, and we start making little notes on some of the some of the um audio that we had up there, some of the interviews we had in the Golden Lamp. All good, no problem. So we record, like I was saying, we record the Philadelphia experiment. And Steve has done a ton of research on that, um, a ton. When we when we put the episode out, you'll hear it. But he's done a ton of research on the Philadelphia experiment. And it went real well. So we recorded that. It was about a half an hour, 45 minutes. So now we plug in our earphones and listen to both of them. Fast forward through both of them. Listen to both of them a little bit. Go back. Listen to it in real time, some of them. Some of it, some of both, all done. Take the our recording equipment, set it on the table. We decide to take the core extra watchdog for a little walk down the street. There's a coffee shop. We go down the street, walk down the street because it's nice weather. Take the dog for a walk, get some coffee. We're gone about 10 minutes. Now we're going to go back and edit and, you know, uh, polish up these podcasts. And we may have had another podcast on there, too. We plug in the SD card into our editing equipment, and it is all garbled. Everything. The golden lamb is garbled. Um, some side conversation that Steve and I have are garbled. The Philadelphia experiment is all garbled. So... I really wasn't that concerned about it because on my recording deck, you can record straight to the deck and it goes to the SD card simultaneously. So no problem. I take the SD card out. I plug in the Tascam directly 
to the editing deck. All of it's garbled. I play back. I play back the Golden Lamb. I play back the Philadelphia Experiment. All garbled. It's so garbled that it sounds like an effect that we do, that we've done. So I asked Steve. Uh, I said, hey, did you just go in there and play around with this? He's like, no, because Steve really never touches the equipment like that. You know, um, he says, no, I didn't do it. And I'm thinking, man, did I hit the wrong button or anything or do something? No, it's so garbled you can't even understand it. Okay, now, look, just like with my Stonehenge encounter, please go back and listen to that. Just like with my Stonehenge encounter, I'm just telling you what happened. Okay, I don't know what the deal was. Uh, I'm not saying it was Eliza or the landing ham. (laughs) I'm not saying that the spirits got upset because we were nosing around in the golden lamb. I'm just saying that my recordings are all destroyed. Okay, and I didn't do anything differently than I've ever done with recordings. They are just destroyed. Couldn't use them. I couldn't, I couldn't put them on here. Couldn't use them at all. So I even tried, I even tried taking some plugins, you know, out of the editing equipment thinking, okay, maybe I hit the wrong buttons or maybe I, I don't know what I thought, but that thing is garbled. Now here's the important, not important part, but here's another part. I had other things on there that I did other recordings, other field recordings that I already transferred. I go back and listen to them, and they're fine. The only thing that's messed up is from the Golden Lamb forward. So Steve and I now are perplexed, right? We get the SD card out and make another recording, just a test recording. We talk for about 10 minutes about nothing. Plug that in, it's fine. It's perfectly fine. So the only thing that's messed up there's stuff before the Golden Lamb, and there's and before Golden Lamb and the Philadelphia Experiment, and there's stuff after that that is perfectly fine. The only two things that are messed up on my recording is the Golden Lamb and the Philadelphia Experiment. Again, I'm just telling you what happened. That's why we don't have the Philadelphia Experiment on here. So what we're going to do is we're going to do that at a later date. So what I decided to do today is I wanted to tell you guys this story, tell you the story I just told you. But now, being in October, officially, we're counting down to Halloween like everybody else. So um, I want to put something on here for you guys that we've been collecting and Steve and I have kind of been studying and looking into. And then we were going to put these on in, in um, October anyway. So I'll just do this now, and then at a later date, we'll do the Philadelphia Experiment. So what am I going to talk to you about now? Well, I was thinking since it was Halloween, I'm going to give you some unexplained or or strange things that happen on or around Halloween. Uh, These are true stories. Some you may know, some you don't. And then I'm going to really expand on one. Uh, But let's start here. Um, Did you know that Harry Houdini died on Halloween but he didn't die of natural causes, or he didn't even die in one of his um, uh, outlandish uh, tricks or illusions or effects or escapes. 
He died from being punched in the stomach. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. So here's the deal with that. Houdini would always say that he could take a blow to the abdomen or stomach without being taken down. So on October 22nd, this is back in 1926, a student at a university, I think it was McGill University, asked if he could prove it. So Houdini had been sitting in his dressing room uh, in my, at the Montreal University. Uh, so, of course, Houdini says, okay. So Houdini braces himself, and the student punched him four times. <laughs> right in the right in the abdomen, right hard. So Houdini experienced a lot of pain, he, and he even admitted, oh, you know, it's really, it's really painful. So after a couple of days, he went to the hospital. And by the time he got to the hospital, he had a severe fever and acute appendicitis. But he insisted on going on to perform. He needed emergency surgery, but he denied it, and he went on to perform. All right. Curtains close, Houdini collapses. So afterwards, he had his uh, appendix removed, but it was too late. So on Halloween day, Houdini passed away. Harry Houdini, the, one of the greatest uh, musician, musicians, magicians ever, uh, probably introduced the world to these uh, death-defying tricks or illusions or presentations that he did. But he dies from being punched four times in the stomach by a college student. <laughs> and he died on Halloween. Everybody remember David Berkowitz, the son of Sam? Became infam infamous back in the 1970s. He was a serial killer. You can look him up. A lot of people remember his story, but a lot of people don't know that he could also predict the future. Well, kind of. <laughs> so here's the setup. Berkowitz was in prison when two people were beaten and shot to death in their Manhattan home, early morning hours, Halloween 1981. Okay? But a fellow prisoner claimed that Berkowitz had previously told him that a cult was planning to carry out just such a massacre. Berkowitz allegedly was even able to describe the victim's apartment to a T. I mean, he could, he could, he picked out and described every stick of furniture, where the windows were, everything. Now, Berkowitz was in prison when this happened, but the police could never get enough evidence to charge him in involvement in the murders. And those murders, the murder of Ronald Sisman, 39 years old, and Elizabeth Platzman, 20 years old, those murders remain unsolved today. And again, they were killed. Halloween, 1981. But the story I want to expand on here a little bit is a strange missing persons case. Now, there's obviously a lot of missing person cases in the news. Yeah, and sadly, uh, it seems like there's a new one every day. But this one kind of stood out to me when I read about it. I read about it a couple of years ago. But it really stood out to me, and I tried to follow it and see if it could ever get resolved, but as of now, it's not. So let me tell you the story of the Halloween disappearance of Cindy Song. Cindy Song was raised in Seoul, South Korea. She moved to the United States in 1995 to live with relatives in Springfield, Virginia, uh, right near Alexandria. 
She graduated high school there and enrolled in Penn State. And she was majoring in uh, the arts, and she was scheduled to graduate in 2002. And on Halloween in 2001, Song attended a party. It was at a place called the Players Nightclub, West College Avenue. So this party started on Halloween, and it spilled over until November 1st. Because, uh, as reports go, Song left the party at 2 a.m., then stopped by a friend's house for a couple of hours. Song um, was dressed as a bunny that night, and this is kind of important to the story. She was a, she had a bunny, she had a little tail and bunny ears. So she goes to this apartment, and they play video games, okay? So now it's around 4 a.m., and Cindy's ready to go home. So one of her friends who was at the party named Stacy uh, drops Cindy off at her apartment, at, at Cindy's apartment. So Cindy's home, and it's around 4 a.m. Now, Stacy didn't stay long enough to make sure she made it in the apartment safely, but she dropped her off. And that was the last time anybody saw Cindy Song. Song's roommate returned later in the day, and the apartment was locked, and nothing looked out of the ordinary, except Cindy wasn't there. So, Cindy Song's friend became more and more concerned about not hearing from her. They reported her missing on November the 4th, which is three days after anyone had had any contact with her. Okay? Two days later, investigators went and searched her apartment. Now, it's believed that she did enter her apartment, but left shortly thereafter. It was one of those apartments where you lock the door when you go out, and the door was locked, and it wasn't damaged or anything, so it looks like Cindy left voluntarily. Importantly, the fake eyelashes that she was wearing that night were on the bathroom counter, and her backpack and phone were still in the apartment. The only thing that seemed to be missing was her purse, which had her driver's license, keys, and credit card. Also, two Britney Spears concerts, concert tickets were in the apartment. So it looks like Cindy came home, Cindy Song returned to her residence, and started taking off her costume because she took her fake eyelashes off, which were part of the costume. As part of the investigation, the investigators got her phone records. There were no calls made or received after she was dropped off at her house. None of the emails seemed alarming either. There was also no activity on any of her credit cards. So part of the investigation, again, the, the investigators read her diary, and they began to believe that drugs may have been involved because she wrote about experimenting with ecstasy and marijuana. But Cindy's friends uh, vehemently stated that, look, that was just normal college experiences. It wasn't like she was some drug addict, okay? They looked into her mental state because a month prior to her disappearance, she went through a pretty tough breakup with her boyfriend that she had been living with. Her family even thought maybe she took her own life or ran off because of the heartache, but her friends, again, disagreed. They said she had started therapy and was taking medications to help herself mentally. And they also said that 21-year-old Cindy was not the type of person that would take off without letting someone know where she was. So here you have a Halloween party. She gets home at 4 in the morning, apparently um, opens the door for somebody and leaves and locks the door. Okay, or somebody locked the door. Okay, so this case at this point is unsolved. They don't know where Cindy is. They don't have any leads. 
Okay. Now, some interesting things start to happen. There was a reported sighting of Cindy a few days after she was reported missing, but it was over 200 miles away in Chinatown. A woman called in a tip that a woman matching Cindy's description was in a vehicle she was passing by. The woman appeared to be crying and yelling for help. And she said a man suddenly appeared and told the witness, get lost. So the police put up a sketch of this man. And I'll put that on the on our uh, Twitter page. The police put up a sketch of this man, and um, but they never located him. Okay. But here's the problem. The witness story changed several times. So they were never really able to nail this witness down. Uh, they do have the sketch, but the story changed over a period of time. And usually in these type of cases, if something traumatic like that happens, uh, the witnesses, uh, if they actually witness something, they are vehement that this is what happened. Oh, because it really shocked me. At least that's my understanding. This person's testimony or, or witness statement changed several times. Now, this case remains unsolved for a couple of years. And then something bizarre happened. And this is what kind of led me to this, to uh, talk about this. So here's the only lead that we know of, okay, in this case. In June 2003, a man named Paul Weekly was facing a felony burglary charge and told a shocking story. Weekly, who was a career criminal, told police that Hugo Selinski and Michael Kurkowski abducted a woman who they thought was a prostitute from State College while she was walking. He said they then took her to Hugo's house in Hunlock Creek, where they kept her alive in a walk-in safe. Over the next few days, they assaulted the woman, leaving her to die when they were finished. The woman described matched Cindy's description. Now, this Michael Kurkowski guy, he'd been a wanted fugitive since May of 2002, after he was convicted of several felonies for running an illegal drug ring out of his pharmacy. He went missing with his girlfriend, Tammy Fassett, while awaiting sentencing. But Paul, this Paul Weekly, claimed that Hugo actually killed Michael, okay, so he said that um, this Hugo Solinsky killed Michael Kurkowski because Michael kept Cindy's bunny ear from her rabbit costume as a trophy, and Hugo didn't like that, probably thinking that that could lead investigators back to them as suspects. Now, what's not clear is how much common knowledge that was that she had on these bunny ears. At least not clear to me. I'm sure it's clear to the investigators involved. But Paul kept on going. He told investigators that Hugo was actually responsible for the death of at least 16 other people. He then led investigators to Hugo Selinski's property where five bodies were located. And you, you probably guessed two of the bodies were found buried on the property belonging to Michael and Tammy. There were also bone fragments found on the burn pit from three different people. Two of them were um, local drug dealers, and the third person has never been identified. 
So after digging around this property, a total of 12 bodies were discovered. Okay? Now, obviously, since this case is still open, none of those remains uh, match Cindy. But that's probably because he had moved on to the property months later, moved, moved on from the property after she had went missing. Investigators have not been able to connect him to her disappearance, obviously, but he's not been ruled out as a suspect. And since Michael is dead, they were never able to confirm Paul's story. Now, they search Paul's computer. The guy is telling this story, this amazing story, right? They search his computer, and they found that he had downloaded multiple articles about Cindy's disappearance. Now, the police believe he may have been studying details in order to provide false information in exchange for a lesser sentence. He was already serving a life sentence and looking at the death penalty. Okay, so maybe he wants to get a lighter sentence. Or maybe he was at the actual killer framing Hugo since he had already had a large amount of dead bodies on his hands. Okay, so you see what the investigators are saying. He knows Hugo has all these dead bodies, so he lumps Cindy Song in with, those, with Hugo. Or... This Paul guy was smart enough, this Paul Weekly was smart enough to gather all the information, including the bunny ears, right? And then start telling this story. And that is not uncommon, as you can imagine. So the bottom line is, Paul and Hugo are serving life sentences on unrelated murders. The sighting of Cindy in Philadelphia is hard to prove. Everyone close to Cindy at the time of her disappearance has have been, everyone has been absolutely ruled out as a suspect. None of her friends believe she would have taken her own life or that she ran away. There's nobody, no physical evidence, no witnesses, and no active suspects. So this case remains unsolved. Again, she disappeared October, after attending a party, October 31st into November 1st of 2001. Again, this is an unexplained story. It's not necessarily supernatural, paranormal, but it's certainly unexplained. I think the key points in a story like this is she came home, opened the door, and locked the door and left, which would lead you to believe that she was with somebody she knew or somebody she was um, very comfortable opening the door for because the door was locked after she left. But that is the story of the disappearance of Cindy's song. In closing, I should say, in wrapping up the Cindy Song case, I should say if you have any information on this or you know anybody that may have any information on this, please contact the Ferguson Township Police Department at, uh, I'll give you two numbers, 814-237-1172 or 1-800-479-0050. You can find out more information on the Cindy Song case by looking at the website called the True Crime Society or the Charlie Project. Both have um, a little more information on that. And again, this case remains unsolved with very little evidence. So any information that can be right, that can be provided would probably help. That brings us to a conclusion of Episode 2 of The Attic. And I hope you enjoy this. And as I stated before, we will get back to the Philadelphia experiment in a later episode. As always, thanks for tuning in. 
like us, subscribe to us, give us a review if you can. You can check us out everywhere on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're everywhere. And we appreciate you guys uh, following along, appreciate all of our listeners, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks again for listening.